Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I have some thoughts I wanted to share with you while they're still fresh in my mind. I'm currently working on creating the speaker lineup for next year's Meeting of the Minds. This last weekend I was talking with Dr. Mark Lopes, who we will be talking with next week, so he can share some relevant research that the GCS has done and is doing. It really got me thinking about the topic I want to discuss, which is the relevancy of science in daily practice. We'd all like to think that we're scientific chiropractors, but what does that really mean, and how should we use science on a daily basis? There's a funny story about Albert Einstein when he was teaching at the university. He gave his freshman class a comprehensive final. Three years later, when they were seniors preparing to graduate, he gave them the exact same final, word for word. One of his teaching assistants was bothered by this and confronted him about it. He asked, how can you justify giving them the same test as though they learned nothing over the last three years? Is that really even ethical? Certainly, Einstein responded. The questions may be the same, but the answers have changed. This, my friends, is the essence of science. While it's fair to say that the science doesn't really change, our understanding of it certainly does. The universe works the way it works. Whether, we, whether or not we correctly perceive how it works is an entirely different subject. The science, as we often oversimplify it, is the preponderance of evidence. This leaves us as practitioners relying on the best available evidence at the moment, but never fooling ourselves into believing we have all the answers. Sir Karl Popper, lived from 1902 until 1994, and he's generally regarded as the leading philosopher of science in the 20th, 20th century. He asserted that using empirical methods, it was impossible to ever prove anything to be true, but you could prove things to be false. This led to his creation of a scientific approach known as falsification. Falsification states that it is the ethical duty of any would-be scientist who has a hypothesis or holds a theory to be true that they do everything imaginable to try to prove their concept is wrong. If they're unable to prove it's wrong, and others are equally as incapable of proving it wrong, then, and only then, can they accept the fact that it might be correct. Let's start with the law of gravity. Try to prove it's wrong. With expensive experimentation, you'll find that it works every time. Beyond that, we know why it works. All mass produces attractive forces on other masses, and the amount of force is directly proportional to the mass of the two objects in question. The mass of Earth creates gravity that holds us to it, and, to a much lesser degree, our mass creates gravity that holds Earth to us. From there, we can determine the, cir the circumstance where there would be no gravity, like in the middle of space, away from any planet or anything else with mass. And yet, even still, there are forces acting on our subject, stranded in space, even though those forces might be infinitesimally small or simply imperceptible. For this reason, we can call this effect the law of gravity, because as long as we have mass, we will have gravity, even though the measurements might change. Now let's do it with chiropractic. Once upon a time, when I was still a student, a Gonstead doctor who was known for being a bit fringe and just barely Gonstead, suggested to our club that when Atlas subluxates to the right, then the C2 will always subluxate to the left. Always? Yep, he said always. Now, in the usual method, we might make the mistake of looking to see if this is true. If we were to find a scenario where the atlas was right and the C2 was left, then we could perhaps convince ourselves that the theory is true, but that would be a dreadful mistake. Instead, we should try to prove that the theory is wrong. 
Even right now, I have several patients with atlas subluxations and no axis involvement, and I have patients with axis problems and no atlas involvement. Clearly, the theory is not correct, and this becomes immediately obvious when we use the system of falsification. I know that anyone who's practiced for more than a few months has ideas in their head about how things work, how subluxations create patterns, if you will. Instead of trying to prove to yourself that your theory is true, take the position of trying to prove to yourself that it's false. If it's a bad theory, or if it simply needs amending, this will immediately become evident. On the other hand, the theory might be correct, but with certain exceptions or caveats. Again, you've just refined your theory, which will make it more workable and effective. In short, you've just made your theory more scientific. Now let's have a little fun. Let's apply falsification to the practice of medicine. I'm sure you can immediately recognize that all of the public effort or media effort on the COVID vaccine has been to prove it is safe and effective, but that's bad science. They're just counting on the fact that your average Joe Blow doesn't know enough about science to recognize they're being scammed. If we use falsification, then we simply need to see an instance where it is not safe or not effective. Let's say that the vaccine was 80% safe and effective. I'm just making that number up off the top of my head. We don't learn about the vaccine or perfect the vaccine by looking at the 80% and ignoring the 20%, as is commonly done. To the contrary, everything we can possibly learn about the vaccine will be found in the 20% and we can ignore the 80%. I'm going to challenge you here a little bit. Think about the tools you use for diagnosis. Let's take the scope, for example. I can't even tell you how many times I've had students ask me if the scope really works. As you should now be aware, that's the wrong question. The correct question is, are there times, scenarios, or reasons why the scope doesn't work? I know you don't like that question. <laughs> it's not a question we like to ask, and it might even trigger a visceral reaction in you. That's okay. That's why science is hard, and it often makes us uncomfortable. We have to ask the questions we don't necessarily want to answer. To complete this hypothetical thought, if we know when the scope does not work, then we've just given ourselves the opportunity to learn something about it and improve our technique and understanding. That's science. Mark Lopes and Roger Coleman have recently done this exact thing in regards to radiology, and it resulted in the creation of an app that can correct for poor alignment and projection distortion. We'll be talking with Dr. Lopes next week about that very thing. So what about the basic concept of medicine, the germ theory? Can we find incidents where the disease is not caused by germs? Of course, Parkinson's disease is not caused by germs. Okay, what about acute infectious disease? Is there a scenario where the virus alone, say polio or measles, is caused by the presence of the virus alone so that every person who's exposed gets sick? That might seem like a strict requirement, but that is the theory that was originally proposed. Bichamp said no, and Bernard said no, but Pasteur said yes. Pasteur had money and politics behind him, so his theory won because it held the most potential for making money in healthcare. A clear example of science by consensus, and why it is never for the benefit of the masses. Over the years, the theory has been amended somewhat to give it more credibility by keeping it loosely in touch with reality. In the end, this is the purpose of science, to give us a better understanding of reality. For the clinician, the purpose of science is still to keep us rooted in reality. It's too easy to misinterpret our anecdotal experiences and draw conclusions that take us further from reality. I remember as a new doctor facing this dilemma where a patient would ask a question that would start with the words, is it possible that? As a new practitioner, those are terrifying words. How should I know? I may have a license due to passing a board exam that hardly had anything to do with chiropractic, 
but now we're talking about real people with real problems. That was when I realized that I knew a lot about the basic sciences. It then occurred to me that any theory or idea that violated the basic sciences couldn't possibly be true. I didn't need to conduct experiments in my office on every patient who walked in the door. I just needed to know as much as possible about the basic sciences, and I'd be able to sniff out what is true and what is not. As an example of this, at the last meeting of the minds, I was scheduled to be the first speaker, knowing that the topic was chiropractic and immunity. I personally believe that if I can't share something practical and usable, then I shouldn't be speaking at all. So I thought, what will give me the most bang for my buck? The basic sciences, of course. I began mapping out the different cells of the immune system. I also began mapping out how they interact with each other, along with environmental circumstances that alter how they interact with each other. If every American had been armed with this basic science information alone, there's no way that this country would have fallen for Fauci's fraud. The first time I heard him suggest that we should wear masks, I thought he was joking. In his position, I would assume that he knows that a 1% decrease in blood oxygen is not only enough to trigger a panic attack, but it's also enough to decrease immune function and make you more susceptible to disease. I would also assume that he knows that studies have shown time and again that when people use physical barriers like masks and gloves without being properly trained in their use, they not only fail to prevent the spread of pathogens, but they actually contribute to and increase the spread of pathogens. So much so that no dental school will allow you to be present during a procedure until you've been properly trained in the use of masks and gloves. And no clinician anywhere has ever worn a mask with the belief that it will keep them from ever getting sick. What if every American had already known that? Would, we have, would he have dared to say it? I think the other purpose of science for the clinician is to educate our patients on how the body really works, as in the basic sciences. The problem, as we all know, is that they are constantly being misinformed instead. I've heard some of the goofiest things come out of people's mouths since this pandemic began, and I'm sure you have too. My approach to the science is that science always tells a story. For example, a silly exercise I sometimes do is that I look through the research for two truths that seem incompatible or at least unrelated. This was how I first discovered the coincidence of PTSD, sleep apnea, and dysautonomia. It turns out they are all linked through the dysfunction of the vagus nerve, but that was not something I would have suspected on the front end. But where we can really learn about these things is in the story. How are they connected? And how are they influenced? Let's go back to the example of the neuroscope. When studying measurements of skin temperature in controlled experiments, it's been found that a cooling period is necessary to normalize the skin temperature and validate the readings. This period has been found to usually be between 8 and 16 minutes. If you're scheduling 3 to 5 patients every 15 minutes, are you invalidating your scope readings by not allowing enough time for this cooling period? The science would suggest so. It's certainly something to think about. See, the problem is that I've never met a chiropractor who thought they were unscientific. We all think we're scientific in our approach, but that belief often blinds us to those instances where we are being unscientific. They call it a blind spot because you can't see it. How much more destructive is it if we all happen to share the same blind spot. This is why it's so important to apply falsification on a regular basis to flesh out those ideas that need to be refined, reformulated, or discarded altogether. Science is about what we know, not what we think we know. Sometimes, if not most of the time, it's very difficult to know the difference between those, those two things. Were there things that Dr. Gonstead was wrong about? I know, it's sacrilege to even suggest that, right? It's truly unreasonable to think that he was right about everything he ever said. That's not to take anything away from all the times he was right. 
and I'm still amazed at some of the things he figured out in spite of how little was known at the time. However, Dr. Gostad has been dead for almost 50 years. To think that our knowledge and understanding, or even the technology and tools, would stay the same, frozen in time from the moment he died, is preposterous and unnecessary. But it is absolutely essential that the way forward is paved by the science. That's why it's so important for each one of us to understand and embrace the science. It's so easy, in the course of seeing patients, to let urgency and necessity take over. But then that takes us away from the science. As Reggie Gold said, chiropractic doesn't have a philosophy. Chiropractic is a philosophy. As we've mentioned many times on this podcast, it is a philosophy rooted in the sciences, meaning it's a philosophy based on reality. Science teaches us the principle of entropy. Entropy is the tendency for all things, over time, to move away from order and move toward disorder or chaos. It's also true that nature seeks equilibrium. Consider a river. Does a river move because it has intelligence? A river flows from the mountains down to the lake, into another river, and ultimately to the ocean. It doesn't do this because it has a hidden consciousness. That is a literary device known as personification, where we ascribe human attributes to non-living things. It used to be done to create insight or beauty. Now people do it because they don't know any better and they actually think it's real. A river flows to the ocean because there is a scientific principle that the river must seek equilibrium. But there are many who confuse this as intelligence equal to that of humans. Humans, to state this crudely, are unlike the river and superior to it because we are anti-entropy machines. We don't just have the ability to resist entropy, but in a limited capacity, we have the ability to reverse it. A river has no ability to resist or reverse entropy and is therefore quite vulnerable to it. There's only one force known to be capable of resisting and reversing entropy. That is intelligence. The river has the inability to resist entropy and is a clear indication that it lacks intelligence. In contrast, the human body's ability to resist and reverse entropy is a clear indication that it has intelligence. If you cut yourself, you're not cursed to bear that wound for the remainder of your life, but you'll heal that wound and you'll do it in short order. You'll also do it without giving even a moment of conscious thought to the endeavor. Your body just knows. In other words, intelligence. Let's say you have a kidney infection. Is your kidney dysfunctional because it's filled with bad bacteria? Or is a dysfunctional kidney the perfect breeding ground for certain types of bacteria? This is the question that's rarely asked or answered in our medically dominated society. We know way more today than we did 100 years ago, and technology has certainly advanced tremendously. So we should be healthier than we've ever been. Right now, the United States spends more money on healthcare than any other nation, yet this year our average lifespan is expected to go down for the first time in many years. How do you explain that? Well, it just goes to show that there's a lot we still don't know. Not only are our best efforts not making us healthier, but they might actually be making us sicker. All because we act on limited knowledge, with the assumption that what we know is all there is to know, or at least all we need to know. Many years ago, we gave antibiotics as a foolproof way to eliminate disease. Now, we give probiotics to do the same thing. Kill all the bacteria and you'll be healthy. Nope, my bad. Put bacteria in and then you'll be healthy. We don't know. Like the river, the gut seeks balance or equilibrium. We now know it isn't about how much bacteria you have in your gut, but the variety of bacteria in your gut. How many years have we messed with this balance without any idea of how it actually works? We do this with everything. Did we really know what mRNA vaccines would do in the human body? Of course not. We still don't know. 
We won't know for 50 years and multiple generations. There are drugs that are known to be harmful, but the negative effects don't even show up until the second generation. So they're harmless until we discover they cause irreversible damage? That hardly makes any sense. Philosophy tells us, and science verifies, that the natural way is the best way. Every attempt we have ever made to circumvent the system results in a weakening. The gene pool is being diluted at a rate never seen before in human history, and it's entirely the result of mankind messing with things he doesn't fully understand. We now frequently see children diagnosed with mitochondrial disorders, a problem, problem I was never even taught about in school. Is that because we never knew how to properly identify them before, or is that because our constant meddling is just now starting to create them? The basic sciences and falsification are two practical concepts that allow the clinician to remain engaged in science without the need of turning their office into a laboratory. Yet in the same way, every office is a laboratory in its own way. One of the variables is that labor in that laboratory is the chiropractor themselves. Patients will often ask a question like, can a chiropractic adjustment help such and such? Well, I don't know if it can in general, but I know if my adjustments can. I have a lot of experience observing the results of my adjustments, but I have almost no experience observing the results of other people's adjustments. So I can't make a blanket statement about adjustments, but I can tell you my observations of what I've seen as a result of my own hands in my own office. At the same time, it's very easy to be deceived by what we observe, and that's why we need to be rooted in scientific concepts like falsification, so we don't overreach and conclude more than we should. I could criticize modern medicine all day for continually meddling with things they don't understand and consequently creating problems that can't be undone, but integrity demands that we also aim that microscope at ourselves as well. Do we ever meddle with things that we don't understand? Do we ever create problems that can't be undone? Is there such a thing as a bad adjustment? What kind of damage is created by a bad adjustment? I think we have to acknowledge that in spite of all we do know, there's still a lot we don't know, and that should cause us to tread lightly and carefully. We must stay rooted in the basics without oversimplifying complex problems. That's a very delicate balance, and it's much easier said than done. How do we know when we should do more? And how do we know when we should do less? These are critical questions that are way too easy for me to ask, knowing that they're very difficult for you to answer. These are the questions that lead us, at times, to the place where we feel lost and rudderless, not sure how to make sense of things, or how to help a particular patient return to that place of proper function or ease. Sometimes we make the adjustment the patient needs at that moment, only to uncover what I like to call the sleeping giant beneath, the problem that started it all but their body has been compensating for with expert precision for many years. All the patient knows is, I was in pain, you adjusted me, and now I'm in more pain. To explain this process requires us to know the science, but if we really know the science, we will have the ability to predict it before it happens, and that's when patients will give you a lot of latitude when they know you saw it coming. You'll never get credit if you call it afterwards. But when you can correctly predict patient outcome, for better or worse, that's when you create the trust that you know what you're doing and they will go along with you for the ride. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you to gain some perspective on how science is important in everyday practice. Science should always lead to predictability. When we find ourselves drowning in unpredictability, we must seek understanding through the application of scientific principles. The mental exercise of falsification is a great place to start. Speaking of science, this year's Meeting of the Minds will be October 15th and 16th at Cleveland University in Kansas City, and the topic will be instrumentation. If you're a Gonstead diplomat or have been in practice for 20 years or more, you are invited to attend. 
On Friday the 14th, we will have a student workshop on campus and all students are invited to attend that workshop. You will never find a learning opportunity with as many diplomates and fellows in one room. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible and I'll see you again next time. Thank <laughs> you.